Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is an internationally produced and multi-award winning playwright here today to talk about her new verse novel, Cloudless. Christine, welcome. Thank you, Maggie. Pleased to be on the show. Now, um, before we begin chatting, I would love to have you just open our session by reading the first poem in the book, Jackie, just to give our listeners a flavor of the style. Certainly, I'd I'd love to. Okay, here we go. Hear the rustle of pages? (laughs) Okay, Jackie. That summer in Perth, the city cooked for months. The sky burned white. The kids were over at the pool all day, every day, baking brown in glitter blue chlorine. They had to take Jackie, whining for a Coke, for lip gloss, dripping on their magazines and stealing drags of Sophie's smokes, then coughing up her lungs in front of everyone. They could be mean, but Jude and Soph put up with her because they had to. Mum said they had to take her. So they're at Beauty Park all day, every day, that rainless summer. The complex takes the city block, a chlorine palace filled with pools. The long ones rimmed with stands, its racing lines marked out in black snake shimmer lines. The kids' pools down the back beside the kiosk selling chips and ice cream. And lastly, there's the diving pool mapped out in squares of darkening blue, so deep you can't see the bottom with five boards all stacked up like in the Olympics. The top is 30 feet. Its tower casts shadows half a block. Mm-hmm. That's where the girls bake in coconut oil on concrete, behind the high with bloody cousin Billy bouncing around in the background like a caffeinated flea. They're not supposed to go there, but it's the best place to sunbake without boys doing bombies to annoy you or little kids running through the towels. And anyway, the lifeguards nodded off behind his reflector sunnies. And that day, against all the rules, a boy sits near them. A shy boy. Not one of those hairy screamers that splashes in your face. The Greek kids are the worst. Then the Irish. But this kid's not noisy. Brown eyes, gold-brown tan, just starting to get muscles. He says to Jackie softly, I think you're beautiful. And the others look at her and, for the first time, see it's true. Jackie scoffs and flips her curls, a little bothered, a little pleased by the strange new feeling of being looked at. A boy with brown eyes liked her. Yes, her. Yes, a boy. What's your name, he asks. Jackie. Cor. I'm Carrie. In the sticky silence, they both laugh and look away. The air between them shimmers. Jackie traces fingers on her towel. Carrie puts his shades back on, but doesn't go away. And the sun shines on her alone in her tiny black bikini, her dark hair, Irish curls and cat green eyes, and leaves the others out with their damp cozies and soggy towels and magazines and who needs it anyway, smokes and melting ice creams. Jackie basks in the glare of her sister's envy, doesn't see the black snake nestled in their towels wake up hidden by the stacks of magazines and smokes and lollies her sister's guard against all comers, right next to the stairs of the highest diving board. So, 
Jackie is such an interesting character. I mean, they're all interesting characters, and uh, and I love the way they bisect through the book. But what what is it about Jackie that made you decide to start with her? Oh, you know, partly it was just that, the, the, you know, I've rewritten the book many times and gone through lots of drafts, but that was actually one of the very first things that I write, and I w- it was the first thing that kind of walked into my mind and told the story was just this image of the swimming pool and the crystalline brilliance of the heat, and I just saw this young girl sitting there, and so I kind of followed where she went. So... That's where she began in the writing. And then in terms of, you know, the more conscious decision about structure, um, I wanted something kind of charming and sweet and and open to open the book so that um, so that there's a sense of accessibility and, and beauty at the very beginning of the book because I feel like readers need some of that to take them through some of the harder things that happen and to say that this is going to be a book about beauty and innocence as well as all the hard Mm, for sure and I guess she's coming of age which is an interesting point in anybody's life yes yes exactly so in a way that the transformation that she's going through in that very recognizable way is radiates out into the many other transformations that happen in the book I think Mm. Yes. Now, when I listened to you read it, um, it was definitely more prosaic than than when I read it with the stanzas <laughs> you know, and, the, and the, the line breaks. Um, why poetry? What was it about verse that made it more appropriate for what you were trying to do? You know, I never set out a verse novel at all. Um, you know, in my mind, I really think of it as a novel that flows on the page in a certain way. And, you know... It just has to do with how I got started with writing the book. You know, I started writing it on a silent writing retreat in Texas and I'd entirely gone there to write my next play. Um, you know, we had a workshop who was very much about intuitive writing and following where you're writing what it is to go. So I think, you know, the combination of 10 days of silence where I didn't hear American voices because I've been living in the States for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and being in a landscape that so powerfully brought back the landscapes of my childhood, you know, it just it took me back to that place in time. And then when I started writing, I just I felt the dryness of the landscape, and I also felt the kind of gap between the enormity of the place and the actual available speech that these people had in my story. There's something about Australian speech that's very dry and very spare. And it just sort of wanted to look like that on the page. It wanted to be kind of dry and spare and simple, but very, very imagistic. So I think I was I was listening to what I wanted to be told. It just came to me in that form. It was not at all that I thought, oh, I've got my novel in verse. <laughs> you know? I mean, I think really if people think of it as a story and a novel and then just follow the flow of the lines, that's how I thought of it, really. Mm. But of course, with each poem being a character's voice, a specific character or a character's point of view, even if not specifically their voice, there's a real dialogue quality too, almost like each one is a little mini monologue. It's true. Yeah, it's true. And again, you know, that wasn't even really so much conscious. It's, I think, I think, you know, for me, the heart of this story is that it's about the way that lives connect, even when the people whose lives say I don't see it, it's about the larger pattern. And so it turned out structurally that moving from point of view to point of view 
allowed me to give that picture. You know, my image for the story in this book is that it's like it all comes from this one moment, like a rock shattering a windscreen, and the fault lines of story create up in that moment, and those storylines belong to different voices. So it's really just a structure that followed the way that that story seemed to want to be told. Mm, and that's a, that's a really great way to visualise the book as a whole too, this idea of that shattering, those shattering fault lines. Yes. Um, did you find it difficult, uh, and I just ask this because I had a similar experience myself, but did you find it difficult to get back into the Aussie vernacular having live in, lived outside of the country? <laughs> you know, it's a, you know, and I think it's because I was a fully formed adult when I left and, you know, I come back regularly. But I do think that it's also, it's a language of memory because this book is set some time ago. It's before, you know, it's in it's set in the 80s and it's before the internet had really taken off. So um, it's, a, it's a remembered language rather than one I'm totally up to date with now, I think. Mm. Yes, I, I found, I, I tried to set mine in reverse in the US and, well, I set my <coughs> novel in the US. And it was quite interesting. I had the characters in a pub talking and <laughs> talking to each other as mates, and I really had to go back and start watching a lot of American films to get that old vernacular back in my head. Yes, yes. And, you know, in the editing process, it was just maddening how many American things I had in there that I had to take out. Yeah. You know, so... And I think, actually, there probably were some words that people don't use in Australia that... I had to take out so on reflection you know there was some weeding out that that I had to do um, also I wanted to ask I, I feel and I only felt this after I'd finished the book um, while reading it uh, you know you're driven along by the narrative but I felt afterwards that there's almost a there's almost a meta a meta poetic aspect to it as if there was somebody else the narrator let's say the missing narrator um, that infuses everything with this kind of um, removed nostalgia Yes, yes. Yeah, I think that's a really observation and, you know, I guess I guess in a way, you know, for me writing this story was also a need to circle back to certain painful moments and memories from my own observations and, and growing up in Perth. And, you know, it really was a women's refuge that was across the road from that swimming pool. And I, I can say that now because that address and it's very important for refugees that they, their addresses are not public mm. um, and so you know some of the things that happened and some of the and the way that the people in those places are things that I remember um, although you know everything in there is fictional none of the major events of the story actually happened and the characters aren't based on real people mm. that world and my experience of that world yeah, I, I felt like it was some of the conflicts that happened and the way that Indigenous people were treated in birth in that time kind of stuck like a little splinter of ice in my heart and I knew I wanted to write some. There is, there's a level on which the way that people don't see each other is important. and um, So the overview that sees all sorts of lives connecting without necessarily seeing that they're connecting I guess that is the sort of authorial part of the construction of the book, the overview. Mm. Yes, I, I mean, uh, certainly Beattie Park is a real place. Um, yes. <laughs> and Vincent Street too. Yes, that's right. 
is it quite different today to the way it was in the book? Oh, I think so. Uh, I mean, the you know the book ends with a swimming pool and real disrepair, clothes for repair, ever open again. And now, of course, it's this beautifully redone aquatic centre, um, <laughs> and um, you know the coda of the book starts twenty years forwards in time mm. from the telling of the story, so it's come closer to the present day. And in that, you know, I mentioned that. There's lots of nice new cafes in Bill, and it's definitely kind of become a lot more yuckified than in the days when there were pool halls and screening towers and purple mirrors, that sort of thing. So, yeah. You know, definitely it's a more prosperous time in that part of the world now. Mm. Yeah, so how did you manage all the interlinking lives? Did you just do it by gut, or did you have a big chart on the wall? <laughs> <laughs> you know... I, the first draft of the book, the whole first part of it, all happened at the swimming pool, and that whole story was about Sally Joe and Jerome and Auntie and all people that we meet who really belong in Perth and Carrie and Jackie. And then the whole second half of the book, after you know, after the shattering incident, I won't give away. The whole second half of the book was about that girl and her family down south with this incredibly tenuous connection through the little bear and my I just said well it's great but two completely different books so then my work was to integrate those stories and back put that girl in the beginning of the story so deciding that Carrie was her brother he likes and that that girl was at the swimming pool at the beginning of the book mm. allowed to integrate it so I have all the stories but it was really in two halves and the first half was in south and the second half was down south and, you know, it still sort of moves in direction, but I had to really work to integrate the two halves into one story. And at that point, I was wall and through diagram. So Batgirl, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Batgirl because she's one of my favourite characters. So, so oh, I'm glad. I love Batgirl. Yeah, so difficult and, and yet so complex and, and fascinating as well. Um, could you read Batgirl, page 15, that one? <laughs> Yes, I certainly will. Here we go. I'm the page. Page 15. Batgirl. Bat likes to in Perth, a giant concrete echo chamber, walling in its sound transmitting water. Splashes, ripples, arrowheads of light. It's flapping water, all form patterns she can measure. Weave into a hard and shiny shape, a beetle shell to crawl inside and think, a shelter from the world's magic waves. Some are fast and violent, battering at her head, the sound of human chatter, TV, sports casts, the flickered white of fence posts from the car. Some, so fragile, butterflies crush them, whispering of blood on summer leaves, the clink of sweaty coins in someone's pockets, seven aisles away in Kmart. Safe in the park's acoustic mm. shell, she listens to the whistling her bodies, then the splash, computes the fall, for three seconds, does an ass, 32.8 feet high, that's tall, looks up, confirms, yes, five forward stacked, she hears the diver's shockwave, also not quite square, the sides here for, so roughly 60 feet across by 76, that pool's snapped. She's glad they've moved downstairs. 
at random noise, more bats who start patterns, map the sky and tamman the stars, a perfect sight for building the machines. Today they're back in Perth just for the week to finish business, sign off school, pack up the house and say goodbye to Carrie's friends, then hit the pool he loves for one last swim. Be any park, it could be worse. There aren't that many places all of them can stand. Her mother Margie stretches out her legs. She sports cat's eyes sunnies with a yellow fifties bathing suit she picked up at the office. Surveys the kid jammed pool, decides against the dip, probably full of chemicals and piss. Margie got a unborn swim, then smoke a joint and drink jam into salt skin snoozing after sand dune pleasures. But those sweet days went west with kids. It's hard for her to the rules. Then we thought of parenting like hanging out, your kids, your friends. Girls soon put paid to that. And later, even Carrie cringes, hippie parents of the pits. Jarrah has a ponytail, he never shows her legs. And then the girl, worst of all, Carrie keeps his distance these days. Oh, here he comes. That girl points her brother out. He's running, wet and shining from the pool to burst their cone of silence. Margie oiling up her legs, Jack holds a smoke. Mum, can I get chips and coke? How much do you need? Five bucks? Five bucks, you kid, me too. Mum, come on, the other kids. Other kids? A pause, and Harry shuffles. Margie laughs. You mean a girl? Another pause. I'll get you chips, well. So, what's her name? Oh, Mum. Jarrah laughs, but backs his son. Come on, lay off him, Margie. I'll get coke for Margie frowns. I mean for Beatrice. That girl scowls, looks up. She hates that name. It is some dream daughter Margie wants who smiles and likes to chat things about her hair and what she wears and isn't that girl. Brooding purple flower in her swimsuit, sitting on her favourite orange towel, the image of a radio spread out before her. Go away, she mutters. Thought you'd like a Coke, humps, Carrie. Use five bucks, says Jarrah. Carrie says, thanks, Dad, tears away. The parents laugh and talk in chalk scrape chat about this girl's net, a bit cute, the jangly noise of human back and forth. That girl presses on her ears. Her mother nudges at her dad. They stop. The, the shell of splashy silence again. The image of the radio stopped jiggling with her pulse and settled down. The pool electric silver blue returns. The girl starts to work again, rewiring, building all the corners of the park. Itself a concrete monster crept inside the roaring roads of Perth, a sanctuary from traffic shielding patterns of diving kids and glitter shields of spray, black snake lap lines swimmers. Serving towers where Jackie and her sister ache and big carry left, a rudely switched up pecking. Jackie's sister's indignation, raw and new, did they never read a fairy tale, or if they lived themselves in noon. At three o'clock, the sky is almost white. The sun consumes all the trace of shade. Sky and water bounce to light. Nothing breaks the law of summer heat. The sun's a ball flung high, a molten moment, weightless at the apex of it. 
the night too far away ever to fall. And of course, that particular poem makes it clear why you needed poetry. <laughs> Thank you. It's, uh, it really requires poetry, I think, to do Batgirl justice. Yeah, well, she is. I mean, she has her own kind of odd poetics of the world, I think. Mm. Well, the world in a different way. Yeah, did, did any of the characters really challenge you? Did any of them cause you to struggle? Sally Joe made me cry a lot. <laughs> I, I I loved Sally Joe and I felt so very close to her and um, sad for her for the sacrifice that she makes. It was very important to me to give her that moment where you see that she survives and somehow has perfectly threads together in the end. Really, she's the one who's travelled the best of anyone to do it. Mm. Yes. And Go on, sorry. Um, and, you know, with writing my Indigenous characters, I felt that I needed a lot more homework with those people to do justice to their backgrounds and their voices um, because a little bit further out of my own life and I also was very aware that I didn't want to take other people's stories but really needed to imagine these lives kind of adequate background and research. So did a lot more diligence on building the backstories of those characters. Like I needed to know them better. Mm. Um, but then in turn, they all, they, they were just all written to me actually. The people didn't have to sort of stretch them. Yes, I mean, though the book is gritty and painful at times, um, there is a kind of magic running through it. You know, something big seems to transform in every one of the characters as if they grow out of their skins. Yes. That's beautiful. Mm. I guess that's your underlying theme really, isn't it? Oh, about transcendence in a way. So, and I think too, you know, it sounds like such a truism, but I do feel that we're all cells of we're all the larger organism and that most pain comes from trying to cut that off or understanding that. So I guess it's a picture of the larger social body and where cells within that. Yes, I mean, I, I think part of the magic is time, of course, which twists and distorts in the book. And I love the line, the tele telescoping present. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, I think of Tennessee Williams, you know, a wonderful American playwright. Mm. He plays the glass menagerie. He says in that, oh, where did he say that? That it's a magical play, and so everything is a little bit more bright and a little bit more blurred and a little bit more intense than in real life. And in, you know, this book, it's written in the present tense of the. So I hope that this is the present, but it also has the the colour of memory and the bittersweetness of hindsight. You know. So, so some of the magic is also just stitching together the knowledge of the patterns of the past as seeing advantage of the present. Yes. Yes, I mean, I, I think, too, there are some moments that happen throughout, the, and that's part of where the magic occurs, I suppose. There are these moments that almost seem to sit outside of time. 
that's true, you know, so there are there are a couple of magic touches I guess in the book and um you know, the thing as I said I live in America so it's a strand of writing encountered in the US, particularly that I really love, which is the work of the Latino and Latino class. And I what really strikes me about a lot of their is that often in times of incredibly hard strive there are these moments of incredible beauty and sort of poetic leaps and magic that come into that world. And it's not what well, when we think of magic we cannot think of just sort of ungrounded whimsy. But what I love about that kind of work is that it's it's magic of absolute necessity for poetry to kind of answer the harshness of everyday life. So I guess I'm inspired by that strand of writing. Yes, yes, I, I, I think so. You can definitely tell there's a, a hint of that. I mean, I even think of that moment when it's, an, it's not always beautiful, happy transcendency either. Um, like when Auntie is at the back of the bus and the bus driver sees her there and it's almost as if they're in this kind of hellish TARDIS. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's, that was a really interesting one to write because, um, you know, Auntie and this bus driver are linked by the event, but the bus driver has only seen Auntie out there, he's only glimpsed Auntie out the window before this moment. So he's sort of, I wanted to give the sense that he half recognized, unconsciously recognized, so he's incredibly by seeing this woman on his bus and then a kind of appreciation between them over on the surface, so incredibly simple, which is. Will he let us stay on the bus for a thousand hours? But in fact, it's a negotiation over something much larger. And yeah, you know, I feel that this towards her on the bus is something that releases him that tardis that you describe because he's got the traumatic moment of time here in the book. Yes, and and also dramatic <laughs> irony for the reader because we we know yes. <laughs> they they don't know that they're connected, but we do. That's right. That's mm. right. Yes, yeah, so yeah. we're almost out of time, but um, what's what's on your plate? What are you working on at the moment? What's next? Oh, oh, a play called Galilee, which is set on the Great Barrier Reef, and uh, it's set in a small fishing town, and um, it's kind of about the struggle of that town to reconcile the needs of the fish industry, is, you know, almost the diet, the science of the marine biology, with the imperative money. So it's kind of all those big struggles written very small in one little town on the Great Barrier Reef. So that's my new play, Galilee. And this novel as well, which is called Narnia, and it's set in London, Australia. And that one is not going to be written in verse, and I'm thinking of it as a kind of literary thread. Mm, wonderful. Well, um, Christine Evans, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for making the time. And listeners, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast here or on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. Bye for now.